Hi, and welcome back to another episode of In Our Tech Society. Platforms like Netflix, Spotify, and TikTok recommend you content based on what it thinks you like. And there's a lot of discussion about how this could take agency away from people, turning us all into mindless consumers of whatever the algorithm recommends to us. In this episode, we're going to challenge that idea and talk about how we actually retain a huge amount of agency in our interactions with algorithms. My guest has conducted a series of interviews with Netflix, Spotify, and TikTok users about how they actually understand algorithms and how they incorporate them into their lives. And he offers a really thought-provoking way of looking at our relationships with them, which, frankly, if you're listening to this on a podcast site like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you already have one. This research was all done in my guest's home country of Costa Rica, and we talk a lot about relations between recommendation algorithms and local culture, and the surprising place of English language content in this Spanish-speaking country. Without further ado, here is my brilliant guest for today. Okay, so my name is Ignacio Siles. Uh, I am originally from Costa Rica. I got my undergrad education here in Costa Rica uh, in the field of media and communication studies. And then I had the chance to do my master's degree in Canada and then a PhD in the United States. Uh, after which I decided to return to my home country. And since then, I have been teaching in the School of Communication at the University of Costa Rica and doing research as well in the same institution in a research center that focuses on on media and communication uh, phenomena in the country and also in comparative perspectives. Fantastic. So we're going to be talking about your new book, which I believe is pretty much finished, but comes out early next year. Um, and it's called Living with Algorithms. Could you just start by telling us why you wrote the book and what it's trying to achieve? Okay, so I guess there were two reasons why I wanted to to write this, or uh, sort of a, a mix between things that you, re- or topics that you really like and that you're really interested in, but also uh, sort of as a reaction against um, other ideas that are circulating around to explain the things that you're interested in. So I guess the, the two uh, ideas that I sort of wanted to react to was first this idea of algorithmic power. So I, I was starting to feel that uh, this idea that algorithms had become a form of power that sort of overpowers humans started to become the dominant uh, account to explain the rise of algorithmic platforms and systems in daily life. And even though I think there's much to to be gained from that perspective, I felt that that it, it was best if we could transform it instead into a research question. So to me, it was more of this idea: I want to transform this into a research project, as opposed to assume it as you know the premise that I should use to understand everything that's going on, uh, because it's not the first time in history, or, or at least in intellectual history, that we're uh, facing or hearing these ideas of technological forms of power that overpower humans. So that was the first one. I wanted to turn that idea into a research question as opposed to uh, considering it as the premise of of my study. And the second one was uh, the rise of this idea of algorithmic cultures, because I felt there was sort of a paradox in the way it was used. It was this idea that algorithms were sort of depicted as an external force that affected places that had no history and people that had no context whatsoever. So I felt like that's not culture, right? They, they are calling it algorithmic culture, but 
uh, at least to me, there's no culture in it. Uh, there's only algorithms doing something. So the book wanted to sort of uh, react against those two ideas. And I wanted to do it in a way that sort of uh, was empirically driven. So I spent some time doing different uh, different types of methods and collecting data over a four to five year period, uh, exploring how people in Costa Rica, and we can talk about later on why Costa Rica was uh, a good case, um, and sort of how people in Costa Rica reacted or related to three algorithmic platforms, uh, Netflix, Spotify, and TikTok, which all three of them had algorithms at the center of the, their operation. And uh, they also had different sort of fields of operation, right? Netflix is more in the field of, you know, uh, movies and, and series. Uh, Spotify is more in the domain of the music and podcasts. And then TikTok, which is also more recent than the other two, at least in this part of the world, uh, is mostly focused on, you know, content created by people. Uh, so I felt that, that would give me, that would give me sort of a, an interesting framework to compare the experiences and to draw lessons that could apply to, uh, people's experiences with all uh, of these three platforms. Great. So you talked about how um, algorithms have kind of been understood, like devoid from context. Um, so why did you choose um, Costa Rica as a case study, other than it being your home country? <laughs> well, yeah, that that helps too, right? <laughs> but in addition to that, I felt like, uh, of course, most of these discussions have taken place um, in the global north. And of course, you can gain so many lessons from that. But there's also the tendency, I felt, uh, to sort of make inferences that people thought would apply to the rest of the world. And again, I think that's something that you need to study as opposed to just assume that's the case. So I felt like uh, doing something in this part of the world, at least in this region, Latin America, Latin American in, in particular, would be a good addition to the to the literature in, in that sense, to sort of let's compare what people are saying in the global north to the realities of people's experiences in, in this part of the world. And considering Latin America in particular, I think that Costa Rica is often considered something as an exceptional case, or Costa Ricans definitely definitely like to think of themselves as exceptional. Uh, but there, I feel like it, it's sort of the opposite. It, it, in many ways, it was the perfect case to consider um, sort of regional tendencies in Latin America. Costa Rica is a very small country, five and a half million people, but it has an amazing telecommunications infrastructure that sort of compares to uh, the biggest countries of the region. So from that perspective, I think that most of the findings sort of are applicable to uh, the cases of largest countries in, in the region. Even if it's even if it's a small country, but then it has a very tiny uh, local like cultural production scene. So that sort of changes the space where these platforms operate, and that instead sort of makes it an interesting case to compare to smaller countries in the region. So I, Costa Rica, to me at least, felt like the perfect sweet spot between uh, those different you know patterns that would allow me to compare to largest uh, countries to the largest countries. Of the region and then to the smaller cases as well. That's really well explained and you mentioned um, the telecommunications coverage. Just as one final piece of context, how um, widespread is usage of the three platforms you mentioned, Netflix, Spotify and TikTok in Costa Rica? Yeah, so Costa Rica has that uh, singularity. I think it's one of the countries with the largest, you know, it's one of the heaviest uh, social media user uh, 
in, in the in the region. So uh, we have recent data for all three platforms, and they're all, for example, Spotify is almost twenty five percent of the population that uses it. Netflix is thirty something percent of the population that uses it, and uh, TikTok is, I think, thirty seven percent. It's the third largest platform in the country after Facebook and, and Instagram. Um, so yeah, that, that created a good, a good base. There's something else I should add in, in terms of context, uh, which is related to the place that technology has in sort of the shift in the ways people imagine the national identity. So by the 1990s, the country sort of shifted towards of direct foreign investment as a primary economic means of development in, in the country. And I feel that that sort of changed people's mentality and turned technology into a central piece of national identity. So to put it, perhaps to characterize it, I, I would say that people use technology as a way to dissociate from this idea of being a banana republic and starting imagining themselves as that's not who we are. We're instead sort of a technology nation. Uh, and technology has come to play such a, an important role in, in, in the country's economy. So today, Costa Rica is the, the largest technology exporter in, in Latin America, uh, considering medical devices and all different you know, different technological components is the country per capita, of course, because again, it's a very small country. Um, it's the country that exports uh, technology the most in Latin America. So it has come to play this incredible role in, in shaping people's you know, national identity and feeling that technology is part of who we are now, even if we're in, the, in, in a very small region in a, in a very poor region as well. That's really interesting. I, I can't say I know a lot about Costa Rica. Um, so you, you've <laughs> taught me a lot there. Um, so your research is kind of focuses a lot on this concept of mutual domestication. Could you just start by explaining what that term means? We'll get into a couple of like dynamics of it in a minute. But what, what does that mean? Sure. Also, the term domestication, at least in the field of media and communication studies, comes mostly from the work of Roger Silverstone in the London School of Economics way back in the 1980s and 1990s. And it basically meant how people sort of incorporate technology into the flows and rhythms of their lives, so the tempo and uh, the spaces of their lives, how they would, for example, that was Silverstone's main uh, technological object at the time so how television for example found a place in not only the physical space of, of a household but also sort of the temporal rhythms of the daily life in in within a household um so i used this idea sort of to suggest i could have used for example an, a, other terms that have been circulated in scholarly discourse, such as you know, shaping or you know the mutual shaping between algorithms and and people, but I didn't want to focus on how people sought to transform algorithms. It was mostly how people sort of um, made sense of this technology in particular, um, and then how they incorporated into the rhythm of their own life. Um, so that's what I meant by by domestication, and I feel like it's mutual because we know that. Uh, these technological companies are trying precisely to turn users into ideal customers of their platforms, you know, the, to build specific profiles for each one of them that would allow them to uh, present them with personalized content and then extract data from them, etc. So that part we know. I feel it was mutual in a way um, that we were not entirely certain yet, which is, um, you know, 
it, it occurs in both directions. People are doing things with algorithms as well. So I wanted to sort of change the conversation and not only to focus on what algorithms were doing to people, but also on what people were doing with algorithms. I really like that um, reframing because I think it gives a lot more agency back to um, consumers. I think that's really important. Um, so there's a couple of different dynamics we're going to talk about in terms of mutual domestication. Let's start with personalization. And I think you've mainly written about this in terms of Spotify. You've written about kind of folk theories and different ways people think about personalization. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So what I wanted to sort of change here was the conversation around the idea of personalization, which is a keyword in how people study this, um, you know, in, in critical data studies. But for the most part, I feel like people usually mean by personalization this tendency for people to sort of uh, wanting to receive personal content and then be willing to give all their data um, to get this personalized content. And I felt that there was so much more to it than we weren't capturing it with uh, the way the notion of personalization was being used. So the way I use it is to sort of suggest that personalization is uh, how a communication relationship between users and, and algorithms are built. So in the case of Spotify that you would mention, uh, I started to look at how people not only was being sort of interpolated by the platform. In the case of Netflix, this is very clear when, for example, the first, uh, the first, when you open the platform or you log in, the first question that you get asked is who's watching, right? So that's a very direct form of interpolating and people and letting them feel they are being addressed in a very personal manner. But then the process continues and a, re and a personal relationship is built between people and these algorithms. In the case of Spotify, it was very interesting to me to start looking at how people began personalizing, how do we just say that personification is? So I started to look at how people were personifying the platform using very specific pronouns, depending on what they wanted to 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 say. So uh, in Spanish, the word platform is la plataforma. So it, it involves a specific gender, if you will. But then people sort of changed the way they spoke about a platform uh, to suggest very different things. So when they wanted to criticize Spotify for not giving them the recommendations they wanted, they would use el um, as him, let's just say. And we would refer to Spotify as him as opposed to ella or her. So they would change completely their, their, their vocabulary in ways that suggested that, suggested that they, were building, they were building a specific relationship with an entity to which they even assign gender. And so this relationship, what I feel like personalization is sort of an evolving relationship. It's not something that is fixed. It's not something, it's something that evolves over time and that requires different roles from people. So on certain occasions, people feel like they're teaching the algorithms how they want them to be in this relationship. But on other occasions, they sort of let algorithms act on them as if they feel like, okay, so we've, we've been cultivating this relationship for so long, it's time for me to sit back and just enjoy what you have for me today. And you would see examples of this uh, considering every single platform that I studied. You would see this in the case of Netflix, like this is time just, uh, Netflix just recommend something to me. I've, I've been doing so much of the effort in this relationship. Now it's time for you to, to, to give something to me. And you would see this, especially in the case of, for example, TikTok, where, where people just uh, felt like it was time to reap the harvest, is it? Just, uh, you know, just, 
to enjoy the pleasures of having spent so much time uh, in, in a relationship with this thing. So it was, it was more than just giving uh, platforms data in order to receive personalized content. And but it, I use the term personalization um, to sort of to signal that there's way much more than just that. If there's a relationship, you are being addressed in a personal manner, you're being interpolated and you respond to it and then try to figure out who the person, uh, quote unquote, behind this interpolation process is. And so I think that's a better framework to understand people's relationship with algorithms. I found it really interesting just reading kind of how you did your research. You just kind of like sat people down in front of Netflix and kind of asked them, <laughs> just kind of monitored how they um, how they spoke about it. It was it was just interesting to read. Um, so one way that people think about algorithms is in terms of personification. But there's another way, kind of folk theory that people use to think about algorithms. Could you tell us about what that is and how it's different? Sure. So, but, but I, I use the term integration to refer to this other dynamic or this other fault theory, which is this intuitive way in which people understand what an algorithm is, even if they don't exactly know what it is. People still have these ideas of these imaginaries and these uh, notions of what an algorithm is, which shapes how they interact with it. Um, so, the second dynamic that I explore in the book it's called integration, and by this I mean how. Algorithmic recommendations are sort of combined in a matrix of, of different resources. Um, so with this idea, what I wanted to suggest is that algorithms don't erase the structure of everyday life for people. Instead, what people do is sort of integrate them into their daily life uh, as yet another resource they have. And they do this based on what sort of what um, capacity they wanted to build in their personal life. So with for, for many users, feeling close uh, to a global conversation about culture was way much more important than any other thing in the world. So they would follow algorithmic recommendations that would allow them to feel that even in this part of the world, this tiny country in Central America, you could still be part of global conversations around culture. So that was important to me because it suggested uh, that people were willing to sort of reproduce certain ideas that were circulating in other parts. For these people, for example, it was not so important to consider Spotify or TikTok as a person, but rather as a computational system that worked the same way in Central America as it did, for example, in North America or in Europe. So for them, it's the underlying premise there is that what you want to do is to sort of build this capacity to be a part of conversations around the world. And for that reason, you would follow algorithms in a different way. So you would, you would follow certain suggestions as opposed to, to others. So I labeled integration this dynamic. So you, sometimes you pay more attention to other people in what movies you want to watch on other occasions, depending on this capacity, well, what cultural capacity you want to build, you will follow algorithms. And there's agency involved in both following, resisting, or, you know, negotiating between those options. Uh, my argument is that that in a, that's those different actions are, both of them are sort of expressions of agency. Yeah, and I, I found it really interesting. One thing that was mentioned in your research is how kind of some of the people you spoke to were more interested in content that was originally produced in English rather than the attempts Netflix has made to produce um, Latin American content because it's often from Argentina right. or someone else somewhere else in Latin America. Correct. Yeah, that, that was huge. And I would say it's not only related to to 
to Netflix, but all across the board, all the pile. The, people show this uh, this tendency in every single study that I did for for this book. So I, I labeled this resistance in in the book. And there's much to be say about resistance because when you use it, people expect you know almost social movements and collective action and organizations of users resisting. Uh, the operation of these platforms. And that's not what I was, uh, you know, that's not what I studied in, in this book. It was more what some people have called this infrapolitical uh, domain of activity, you know, things that maybe lack political articulation, but that in many ways are expressions of people's autonomy or even agency and identity within this system of datafication. So uh, by resistance, I was not talking about, you know, uh, how people organize themselves into different groups or social movements that want to, uh, you know, break down the system, but instead how people will, within the system find ways to express who they think they are and to resist precisely attempts to turn them into something else. In the case of Spotify, for example, turn them into paying customers as opposed to just enjoying the app for free. In the case of Netflix, it was huge, this idea of, of resisting a little bit um, so the catalog in Costa Rica is a, a bit different from what it is in other countries, right? And that's based on different licensing deals and things that Netflix has uh, going on. But for people here, it was how come I pay for the the same rate? I say I pay exactly the same amount that people in the U.S. pay, and I have not the same access to uh, to the same content. So they would react uh, against that. In the case of 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 uh, TikTok, it was pretty much the same idea. So how come I'm shown these ideas that reveal, let's just say, what uh, wealthy life in the U.S. means, and uh, which people interpret as sort of almost an insult to the conditions that you live in in a country like this? So uh, this tension between the global and um, and the local was was huge source of, of of resistance for people in the way they experience algorithms in this part of, of the world. Uh, so yes, they would watch content uh, created in Latin America on Netflix, but they would never consider that sort of the, um, well, th there's a solution since I'm not giving you the content that you have in the US. They want both, you know? So they would consi consistently react against that because again, um, watching cultural content is a way of participating or feeling that you're participating in a, in a global conversation. So since you're paying the same price, they would consider sort of a, a discrimination when you're not given the same content that you're giving somewhere else. So a huge, I think this tension between the local and, and the global um, is very important in the way people relate to algorithms in, in ways that perhaps would not have been so visible had I done the research let's say, in the global north, for example. That's that's really interesting. And I'm starting to see why Costa Rica is such a, <laughs> a fascinating place to study this. Um, there are two more dynamics that you identify, which are ritual and conversion. Can you just talk us through what those mean? Sure. Uh, so with rituals, what I wanted to do was, again, <laughs> sort of to to challenge uh, this idea of power and how power operates in um, in you know datafied societies. So the main term that I've seen around circulating to explain power in datafied societies is this idea of platformization, right? So that platforms have different logics that shape how um, you know people's own behavior and and it's sort of are, are the source of power. And I wanted to sort of supplement that idea by suggesting, well, there's also another way of thinking about power, 
that doesn't put platforms into in, in, as the center of the conversation, but that rather situates people as the center of how platforms and, and power operate. So to me, that's what rituals are. It, and I'm building mostly on the work of Nick Kuldry, also from London School of Economics, uh, who has theorized this idea of rituals in relation to the media and how they, they become sort of, through your rituals, you sort of act out the centrality of the media in, in your life. So I wanted to draw on this idea and sort of think, okay, so how about we think about the power of platforms, not through the logics that they have to shape users' behavior, but rather through the rituals that people sort of carry out to act out the centrality of these platforms in their daily lives. So I looked at the rituals that people have to, for example, create a playlist on Spotify or the rituals that people have to sort of deal with boredom uh, through very specific activities on TikTok. And, it, and I think the best way to call them is our rituals. And they're very patterned um, activities. For example, in the case of, of, of TikTok, people would wait until the end of the day in order to have the appropriate conditions to use, to use TikTok for hours. Um, and so I think that's sort of how the idea that you have to deal and get rid of boredom in your life through this platform is how power operates. The same thing with Netflix. I, I studied how people sort of had this, this if both individual and sort of collective rituals through which they act out the, the centrality of, of Netflix in their lives. So it's, again, it's, it was a way to sort of change the conversation, not from the power of platforms, but rather to how platform, how power operates through specific and pattern activities in the lives of people through which these platforms acquire a central place. Just while we're on the topic of recommendation algorithms, as a side note, it would really help us reach more people if you left us a review. You don't need to write anything, you can just put a five-star rating, but that means that the Spotify or Apple podcast algorithm, or wherever you're listening to this, thinks that we're worth recommending to someone with similar interests to you. And while you're there, if you haven't subscribed to us or followed us already, we have new podcasts each week with experts from across the world. And I'll tell you at the very end of the show about what we've got coming in the next few weeks. Back to the interview. And do you think there's a difficult line here in terms of assigning agency to people in their use of platforms like TikTok, but also recognising where there might be issues with, say, addiction or whether that that could be illusory in some way i don't know yeah no so i i the, the term addiction comes up very quickly when you talk uh, about tiktok and it's mostly users themselves right people themselves who would who would say to you i'm addicted to this platform or it has the most aggressive and addictive of algorithms in any platform whatsoever um, but i think people mean very different things with this of course there's uh, you know the very like literal term or condition of addiction, but that's really not what I found in people's practices. For the most part, what they meant was, well, this consumes more, more time that I would like to devote to it, for example, or it has this sort of, I think it, it signals an effective attachment as opposed to, you know, a, a um, pathological condition or anything like that. It's not about, you know, a medical, you know, or psychological thing. It's, it's a way to frame an effective attachment to the app. Um, that's how they use the, the term um, 
addiction. And of course, it speaks to the issue of agency, right? Because they're, what they're also doing is recognizing that algorithms have a pull on and have something to do with their terms. But that's, I feel like the term mutual domestication is sort of trying to get at this issue, uh, right? It's people act in response to algorithms, but algorithms also act in response to what people want, to their integration, to their personalizations, to, the, to the, the way they live this tension between the global and the local. So it was a way to sort of capture um, agency as it shifts in this relationship, um, which I think... Uh, which I think that these ideas of, of, you know, algorithmic power or the way algorithmic culture was being used didn't handle that well. That's that's a really kind of interesting way of thinking about it. This is something I've been wondering about for a while. Mm. Um, there's a fifth dynamic you identify, which I don't think we've mentioned, which is conversion. Um, could you just explain that for us? Definitely. So conversion comes from, or the term conversion comes from, uh, Roger Silverstone's original domestication framework. And it basically means transforming what is a private consumption of media and its contents into a public issue. So in, in the case of television, it was very clear how the next day after you watch something on TV, you would go to work and talk to someone else uh, about it. And you would build a personal relationship with others in public through uh, the private consumption of this medium. So I think this idea of conversion is still very strong in the case of algorithms. It's sort of played out differently depending on what platform I was investigating. So in the case of Netflix, for example, people still felt the need, even the obligation, I would say, to recommend content to others, right? They felt that expressed their taste, that expressed, that expressed something about who they are when they were able to recommend something of quality to someone else. So they saw algorithms as sort of as the other, right? Sort of the, as an, another alternative, much less reliable than their own taste to recommend content to others because they felt, well, you know, you can only recommend something to someone else if you really know that person, if you really know what they're going through. So you can even change uh, the mean, the intending meaning of a series because you're trying to speak to that person's life. So it would make sense in the context of our relationship to recommend this content. And they felt algorithms could never do that, right? In the case of Spotify, it was a completely different way of understanding what the role of algorithms was in establishing public relationships with others. People felt instead uh, that algorithms sort of enabled um, sort of this the discovery and of of affective moods through music. So it's completely different, right? Algorithms were an ally as opposed to the other. They will build these playlists and then rely on algorithms for, uh, for other people to discover the playlist they had created. So they sort of changed everything and would even use terms and, and names for their playlists in ways that in their minds would help algorithms recommend what they had created to others. Uh, so you can see that, that algorithms have very different roles and that those roles vary based on what kind of relationships with other people people were trying to, to sort of establish. So I think conversion is still huge in people's lives and the way they experience media technologies, but they play very different roles. Uh, and I felt that, again, conversations about algorithms had not recognized the centrality of how you imagine the public and who the pu public is in the ways you relate to algorithms. 
That makes a lot of sense. I've I've only really ever thought about this in terms of algorithms can be a bit of an echo chamber. So maybe mm. when you recommend things to other people, then they could find something else. But it also makes a lot of sense that it's kind of embedded within your relationship as well. Yeah, I think th those ideas require much more empirical work, right? So we've been uh, we we have become accustomed to hear that algorithms what they do is sort of uh, you know. Uh, put you inside certain bubbles and echo chambers and all that. But here you find people doing completely different things, right? Uh, challenges, challenging this idea of the echo chamber and, you know, quite the opposite, wanting to build uh, relationships with different people uh, in different parts of the world um, and would consider algorithms an ally in this process as opposed to, you know, the enemy they have to, to resist. Uh, so. That's why I think it makes more sense to turn these ideas or, or these premises into research questions. So you can see to what extent they really apply in people's lives. And, and my, my hope is that you can actually build theory um, that you know, is derived from uh, empirical data as opposed to, okay, this, I, this, here's this idea that I have and it should apply everywhere in the global South, in the North and everywhere else. Um, we should be concerned about how filter bubbles operate. Well, Maybe we should, but we should first look at what people are doing with it and then come to a conclusion. That makes a lot of sense. And just finally, what do, what would you say is the main takeaway from your book, in, especially in terms of agency, I guess, and our relationship with algorithms? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, I guess I feel like we're sort of making choices between considering agency um, as sort of a possession that you either have or not and that you can express mostly when you resist platforms and i guess the main takeaway for me is that uh, agency is a much more complicated process uh, than that it evolves over time it is enacted differently you can actually uh, express agency both by following algorithms and by resisting them so i think we should sort of start changing the ways in which we understand agency in ways that account for all these complexities and not reduce them to very specific positions where well if you recommend uh, if you follow recommendations there, there's probably less agency even that but if you resist them and if you do that through organized or collective action um, then you are actually expressing agency <clears throat> sorry but i think there's there's uh, agency also in the navigations between the spaces of resistance and obedience, if you want. And we should uh, sort of account for those instances uh, much more than we have done um, in the past. And I think also um, that there's an advantage to doing empirical work and trying to understand what these technologies mean in people's experiences in, in, in daily life um, in ways that I think add complexity, nuance, and richness to our con um, conversations about what algorithmic cultures mean or what power means in, in datafied societies that, again, are much more complicated than just, you know, um, the ways in which we have been framing them. That's a really positive and thought-provoking note. Thanks so much for speaking to us today. No, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. 
So, we have a new episode coming later this month on why public service media organisations like the BBC in the UK use these kinds of recommendation algorithms, and how that's prompting a rethink of what their values really are as public service broadcasters. So that's a really interesting kind of follow-up episode to this one, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that. And next week we are discussing Muslim women human rights advocates and their battle with censorship in the Horn of Africa. I'll see you then.